Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. We are back. It is December. Uh, we might not be posting this until the new year. So just to let you know with things changing so fast that uh, some of this stuff might be outdated. So I am Ben Myers, Bullpen Research and Consulting. I'm here with my host, Mr. Stephen Cameron. Good day. How are you? We're back. We're back. I know. I'm good. I'm yeah. good. This weather's a little little chilly today, but uh, it's better to be living uh, in a cold Canada than a warm United States. So, ooh. <laughs> controversy. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Like okay. It. We have a sponsor for our show who actually does a lot of work in the United States, so I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't slam our friends in their 200,000 COVID cases per day. The award-winning Nizo Studios is a premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project, launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit nizostudios.com and ask about live site. There virtual sales center software. It's the media darling taking the building's industry sales process by storm. All right, Steve. We have a guest. We have a we guest do. today. All, Very, the way from, uh, all the way from Toronto, Ontario. All the way, yeah. We're excited for, uh, for this guest and uh, someone that most people in this city and industry are familiar with. But to give you a little bit of an intro, he was born in North York, raised in Oakville, and educated in Hamilton, Ontario at McMaster University. Today's guest is Mr. Jeff Hall, who is now the president of Hallmark and has been since 2008. Since taking the reins, he has transformed the company from a suburban residential condominium developer into an urban-focused, award-winning, and vertically integrated development and asset manager across all asset classes. Since 2008, Jeff has overseen transactions and developments valued at more than $1 billion and grown the assets under management from $250 million to $1 billion. He is responsible for all aspects of the business, including corporate strategy, acquisitions, and partner relationships. We are excited to have Mr. Jeff Hall on the show. Welcome, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. No problem. Appreciate it. How was that intro? I got every, I nailed it pretty uh, bang on today. Yeah, you weren't supposed to say I grew up in Oakville. It <laughs> yeah, ruins the street cred. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I should have just stuck with North York. Where in North York were you born? Uh, Jane and Finch. Oh, yeah? I was yeah. born at uh, ba- Baby and Finch. I went to school at Bathurst and Finch. Well, you didn't go far, far from cradle to to school, eh? Yeah, I I, I like to say uh, Jane and Finch. It's not you know too far off. I was born at North York um, or York Finch Hospital, which is you know actually just at Jane and Finch. But you know, it sounds makes I'd me f- sound a little bit rougher. You're gonna, th- you're gonna think I'm making this story up, but I actually I did go to high school at Bathurst and Finch, a school called Northview. And I actually had a friend get shot in high school, and he ended up at that hospital. I remember having to take the bus there a few times. And I was like, this is probably not a good idea, but <laughs> got to go see our buddy. Anyways, it's a, great, f- it's a great neighborhood. It's a great neighborhood. I don't, I don't mean to uh, disparage it at all. Perfect. Um, well, I was born well, there after all. So. And, then nice. you, and then you moved to Oakville when? Uh, I moved to Oakville when I was in grade one. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and so I, I basically grew up my whole life in Oakville. It's a great place to grow up. And then you went to McMaster. Why don't we turn it over to you to give us a bit, uh, sort of what did you take at school? And tell us about your early years. Uh, sure. Um, well, I 
went to McMaster University because they had this great um, combined engineering and business program. So first year university comes along and, you know, maybe I, maybe I partied a little bit too much. I'm not sure, but, uh, You're probably the only one who ever done that. Yeah, university. right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I ended up in my second year, uh, as a business uh, student only, uh, not an engineering and business student, <laughs> which, you know, um, you know, looking back on that particular point in time in my life is probably, uh, one of the regrets I have that I didn't persevere and stick with it. I don't, I don't think it would have made like, too much of a difference where I am now, but you know, I, I certainly do value engineering as a really important sort of foundational education that, uh, that you can get based on you know, the people who I've, I've met and worked with in this industry. So anyways, um, I finished with a business degree. Uh, and um, you know, from there, I had been working you know, for a couple of years in between uh, like school years in the summer on construction sites. And then I had worked for a couple of years at TD Bank. I was part of the, this like TD Bank um, summer student program. And probably, you know, the second uh, regret I have in my uh, professional career uh, was that I declined uh, a full-time role after school at TD Bank so I could go skiing. I, I don't regret it that much. So I can Wait go, a second. I can, I can go skiing <laughs> for, the regret? for a winter. Where's the regret? Um, so Where'd you go skiing? I lived in a very blue-collar town called Golden, British Columbia, yeah. uh, where kicking I skied yeah, at Kicking Horse. My sister us. did the same thing. She went to McMaster University, small world. She's a little younger than you, but went to McMaster, got in a car with her girlfriend, drove to Golden, got a job at, uh, on the course or on the ski hill. And lived there for a year. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. The only two girls in Golden, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so well, a little the only bit two non-Australian girls, Yeah, at a least. little bit different there than Whistler, I'll tell you. So after my year, I also did some traveling through, uh, through Europe, and I did a year skiing out in British Columbia. I came home and took the skills that I had learned in BC working in a kitchen, as a line cook and applied them back in Oakville, oh, Ontario. Yeah. So uh, do that yada, yada, yada thing. So anyways, when I, when I sort of came to grips with having to grow up a little bit, I had been working in sales and I applied to law school because I think like maybe a lot of other people that go to law school, they didn't know what else they wanted to do when they grew up. So it seemed like a good option <laughs> at the time. Uh, and around the time, like when I had gotten in, to UBC, I um, I got the call from my uh, my grandfather um, that he was sick, and being uh, that he worked you know alone or like with a bookkeeper only, uh, he had asked if I would come in and you know work with him uh, for as long as I could to to like learn the business and, and help. So it was sort of a, a quick transition into Hallmark. My grandfather had like a, a late stage cancer he had to get operated on. Um, that being said, I was still able to work with him for about a year uh, before he passed away. And, um, you know, it was definitely one of the the most tragic, you know, because I'm watching my grandfather pass away, uh, but also um, sort of fulfilling years of my life and sort of learning the business and, um, you know, close, 
closer to the end of that year, he asked if I would sort of stay on and in particular finish what was um, a, his legacy project uh, that he felt like was the culmination of his his life's work, um, which ended up being the Hallmark Center, which is now built and complete at Young and Shepherd. Beautiful so that's building. like kind of the the origin story. It's a great story. I didn't know uh, a lot of that. Yeah. So I was very green when uh, in terms of real estate. And probably a lot of other things too. When I when I started with my grandmother, this was back in 2007. Okay. Uh, I started, and um, and so he passed away in June of 2008. And we had this project, uh, million square foot mixed use project, uh, which was still in sort of the design uh, development stages, getting closer to zoning um, with uh, like a sales and marketing launch plan for like maybe six months out. And then September happens and the world, you know, goes through this crazy yeah. uh, financial crash and sort of everything gets um, tossed up in the air. Is Hallmark going to be around? Uh, it was sort of like um, the same thing everybody was probably thinking about in, in March, April uh, right. this year, right? Like you sort of check everything. Yeah. Um, and thankfully in Toronto, that was just a blip. And we had great partners on the project, Tridel, um, who essentially did everything because we were, you know, a three-person, then two-person, then three-person, then two-person show mm -hmm. at that time at Hallmark. And so we able, were able to get the sales, and, and that project um, was able to sort of get off the ground and, and be under construction. So that gave us uh, a real opportunity sort of then to take stock of things. My grandfather had just passed away and my grandmother uh, was my boss now and she hadn't been uh, in the business um, really on a day-to-day -day basis, although they spoke about you know business all the time at, at home. And so we had a decision to make about you know, what we wanted to do with this with this company. We had this project, it was under construction, um, Tridel was taking care of everything. We had a couple other pieces of land and interest in projects that were kind of like, um, you know, scattered throughout the city at different sort of stages. But for the most part, you know, we could sort of either close everything up or we could, you know, decide to keep on doing what we were doing or pivot and go in a completely different direction. So and you closed everything up. So we closed everything. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Good show. I, you know, uh, I would be in my um, I would be in my thirteenth year skiing at uh, Kicking Horse if we closed everything up, <laughs> Steve. So you know, taking a taking a step back for a second, you know, I I realized um, you know that I was very green, you know, when I started, and so you know, I did everything I could to learn as much as I could about the real estate business um, when, you know, I, that 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008 period for the next sort of two to three years, it was intensive. Okay. Going to York University, Schulich School of Real Estate and getting like a, like a intense sort of download of, of um, real estate development coursework from, James McKellar, who put together like this program for me, uh, so, um, so that like, was a like great makeshift experience. or an actual like a make makeshift. Wow. Like I reached out to him and like, can you help me out? Like I'm taking over this business and I don't know much about real estate. You know what's gross rent versus net rent? I don't know the difference. Um, oh, wow. 
and uh, or like all sorts of other things, right? So, anyways, he helped me a lot, and you know, I really made an effort to meet and listen and learn from as many people as I could. So that was a really interesting sort of formative time for for me and and for sort of the germination of the new hallmark. And um, what we ended up deciding was that, you know, as, a, as my grandmother, uh, as a family, that we still liked real estate. Um, you know, we had some relationships in real estate. Um, real estate had been, you know, a great uh, industry to be in for us, uh, you know, from when my grandfather started the, the business in 1950. I should say that this year would be like 70 our 70th, or I guess oh, it is our 70th, 70th anniversary. Wow. You need a little uh, logo, a little uh, 70th yeah, year anniversary that's right, logo. That's right. <laughs> so it, the real estate industry was a great industry, um, had been a great industry for us, and we still wanted to be in the industry. And um, you know, while we liked real estate development, residential real estate development, we wanted to continue being residential real estate developers. One thing that you guys both know about residential real estate development is that the cash flows are very lumpy, right? So you write a big check to buy the land. You write a couple big checks, you know, leading up to uh, sales and marketing. You write a couple more big checks to get your uh, construction to get to your point where you're getting construction financing. Then you wait two, three, four years, and hopefully you get you know a check that's bigger than. You know, all of those other checks combined back. But I thought you, know, you were going to say, I thought you were going to say you pay a big check to pay off the city. I mean, pay DCs. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. No, no comment. I don't know. <laughs> that makes it seem like there's no, there's not, there's nothing. I mean, I heard, I've heard stories uh, like in the past, but you know, I've never personally seen. No, I was more alluding like just that. to the fact of the cost of development these days and how expensive parkland, Section Thirty Seven development, development charges, charges all, how all that stuff. X yeah. percent of a yeah HST. Yeah, I just call up Dougie and get an MZO. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just simply that easy. I loved when the paper said uh, that the one developer um, gave a thousand dollars to his campaign and they got a project approved. <laughs> yeah. and I was like, yeah, I don't even charge. I don't even do a single report for a thousand dollars, let alone you give a thousand dollars to Dougie that's, and he approves a, yeah, right. a, a twenty-five million dollar uh, development site, right? <laughs> anyways, yeah, that's off, not off that's not going to influence anybody's thinking. That's yeah. for sure. So, um, anyways, uh, where was I? Um, cash flows are really lumpy in residential real estate development, so we thought that it would be a good thing. For us, as a as a as a business, to have um, a portfolio of income-producing properties that you know would have more regular cash flows to complement um, our bigger what what conceivably was our bigger residential uh, real estate development business. So, being a younger guy, having like no no like org- organization that was built up, no other assets that we had that were income-producing. Um, you know, it was a, basically a blank slate. We want to build a portfolio of income-producing properties. How do we do that in today's world? And this today being like, you know, 2010, I guess. And so, being a young guy, uh, I wasn't 30 yet. You know, loved downtown, downtown living. So personally, I was passionate about sort of the downtown, downtown core, downtown periphery. Um, but also felt that from a number number of other perspectives. Um, 
investing in the downtown and downtown periphery was the right thing as a business strategy as well. You know, for example, felt like it was, or not felt like it is a much more sustainable uh, form of growth with the city uh, growing significantly, um, hopefully still, you know, going forward after, after this, um, which I expect it will. Anything you bought today, you know, could be something different 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And if you have a long-term investment horizon, you know, you can actually be around to see how a retail building could be a residential building or an office building could be a high-rise residential building, you know, 10 or 20 years in the future. So there's a, a real, um, I think, uh, longer-term sort of business uh, value-add strategy within it. And so we started small. Uh, the first uh, income-producing property we bought was a strata title retail property in the beach. So, like, it was the first first one we sold, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it was a great starter property to help understand uh, commercial real estate um, but you know, it didn't have a lot of the factors that we that we uh, were looking for uh, when it came to investing in income-producing property. You know, the there was too much retail. There is too much retail on the beach. There's not enough people. There's not enough development to bring more people. And because it was strata title, um, there's no long-term redevelopment potential. So um, we ended up selling that um, two years ago. Uh, but along the way. We might have bought that in like 2011 or something like that. How, how big was Hallmark at the time in terms of staff? Staff? Did we you would have been two. Nice. Who's your first hire? Um, my first hire. So I, I inherited uh, a bookkeeper, uh, Sharda. Um, she was great. Um, she, she, she stayed with us uh, for many years. But my first hire. Uh, beyond the bookkeeper was a woman named Leona. Uh, so she's our senior vice president of development. She's still with us. Nice. Um, she's been you know a big part of our growth over the years. I think That's she came story. on in 2012. And um, she was Tridel, right? She or had worked at Daniel's Tridel Rockport. Rockport. That's right. Um, and so she came like well season from a number of larger developers and worked on some some fairly significant projects in in the city so she took a chance on us i i had met her while working on the hallmark center project at tridel but then she went from tridel to rockport um and so we ended up uh bringing her on then um so we started doing you know sort of more periphery or core periphery type projects after that beach one and started to add a little bit of value add or, or adaptive reuse development um, to the projects, you know, as we sort of started to sort of gain some momentum. And I, I should know this, I should probably checked um, before I came over here, but I think now our portfolio is probably about 40 or 45 projects. Wow. Um, that was one of my questions. And so, I could. I should probably look at the website. My website. That's the way I, I check. How many projects <laughs> are I have again? Let me check. Let me I, check I, looked my I looked on your website. I don't I have that. Man. I shouldn't be like so. Anyway, so uh, we have, for the most part, um, except for you know the Hallmark Center and one one other legacy project that we had in North Etobicoke, all of those were sort of acquired, developed, partnered on um, over the past ten years. 
That's great. Um, so Would like you still, been, own, you still own the retail at the Hallmark Center? We still own the retail in the parking garage at the Hallmark Center. Yeah, yeah. How many square feet of retail are there? Off the top of your head, it's... 65,000 square feet. I can't believe wow. you didn't put a blockbuster in a national sports back in. Yeah, I know. I so many, so many people would come to me and say, you know, that's where I used to get my skate sharpened. That's yeah. where I used to get my skate me sharpened. Too. I'm one of them. And I used to go to that blockbuster religiously. <laughs> yeah, we um, were actually very fortunate with the retail that we have there um i mean we have a whole foods we have a royal that's bank right. that's right and a rexall it's like the kind of the developer trifecta <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> grocery store bank and pharmacy we also have a a um like a medical spa and a restaurant which you know are, are having some some tougher times over the past nine months but no it's it's an asset that you know it's our name is on it and mm-hmm. i hope hopefully um, we'll own it forever. Um, nice. You know, I, I I don't think I'll be the one to sell it. Don't. Well, now that yeah. I've said now that I've said it on the podcast, <laughs> that's, you know, in I, st- I, I that's in blood. I can't. Someone <laughs> someone will have to pay a real significant premium to to buy that buy that asset. Now that I've said I won't sell it on the podcast. <laughs> uh, so I love it. Um, yeah. So we've ended up, you know, over the past ten years, I think. You know, first finding a niche and then developing a real business out of that niche. Where um, I don't know that there's many other groups that uh, have the portfolio that we have, um, the asset quality that we have, uh, have like the vertically integrated platform where we have asset man investments and asset management. We have development planning and project management um, with. Uh, uh, internalized property management too. We call it tenant experience, and then also a group that would look at retail, office, um, purpose-built rental, uh, residential, which we have three projects in the pipeline, um, but would also look at residential condominiums uh, and which you have, uh, which we have, and private debt as well, which we do, which we do a lot of. So we ended up building like this this little business platform um, brand uh, around, you know, something that I'm really passionate about, which is, you know, downtown Toronto and uh, urban living. So it's been pretty cool. I don't think, um, you know, many people uh, really, you know, I feel very fortunate because not a lot of people have, aren't as fortunate to be able to sort of create their own adventure, so to speak. Like mm-hmm. It was something that was really passionate about and was able to create it from scratch, building it from the ground up. And, you know, it's it's great to look back in the last 10 years and see what we've built. And, you know, I feel uh, very thankful to have had the opportunity to, to do that and yeah. looking forward to, to I, continuing to build the business. I have, I have, a, I have a one interaction with your grandfather. So I'll, I'll set up the story. So I, I worked at a company called Clayton Research and, you know, for, for a couple of years in the, in the mid 2000s. And so when I took the job at, at Urbanation, you know, one thing that my boss said is, well, Urbanation's list of future projects is not good. You should clean that up. And I said, okay, well, I will clean that up. So one of the first things I did in 2017 is I took the list of all the future projects that they had and they had a list of all the developers and I'm like, I start calling. And you know, if you call a developer, the chance of you getting them on the phone is pretty much zero, all right? 2007, so just, right? 2007. Yeah. So I'm just leaving messages for people. Hey, you got this site at XXX address. When is it coming to market? Is this the accurate, you know, GFA and all that stuff? Things were a lot more difficult to find online back then. So 
So I see one hallmark call and uh, someone answers. <laughs> Hi, it's Murray. And I'm like, five, ah. five ten, seventeen hundred. <laughs> so that's a, yeah, and I'm like, ah, and I paused because I wasn't, didn't expect anyone to answer that's the phone. phone. He's like, what do you want? I'm like, well, just the button. He's like, you don't know what you want. And hangs up on me. <laughs> <laughs> you call me, you don't know what you want. And I hang up and I was like, oh, <laughs> I was so embarrassed in my little uh, tiny uh, booth at the time. But uh, yeah, that was the only interaction I ever had with, uh, yeah, with your, very, your grandfather. Um, very Murphy Hull. Uh, Murphy, sorry. He very, screwed very, his name up. Um, old school guy, but, you know, really valued um, his reputation and his partners and, um, you know, great sort of foundation, um, you know, that year that I had working with him to pick up on sort of those those particular things. Um, would, there, would there be one uh, lesson or one sort of piece of advice he gave you that you kind of sticks with you, you remember? <sighs> Or is it just a saying? A saying? I don't know. All grandfathers have sayings. Just hang up on people that call that don't know what they're talking about. You know, <laughs> like something like he who laughs last, laughs best. <laughs> well, I, I know for him, um, you know, he was someone who grew up uh, with his wife, my grandmother, in the Depression, like immigrants in the Depression, had no money. And so I think for them, you know, one thing that has stuck with me is is to really sort of mind the, uh, or to sort of look after the pennies and the, the dollars will look after themselves. So that's one thing. I mean, not to the same extent that he, he would, uh, mm. obviously. <laughs> but also from a, like he, he was very, very much focused on the long term. And as a result, I think he made some decisions that maybe at certain points of his career held him back, but, you know, um, ended up, you know, being a boon during times that were more difficult. And in particular, that's not taking a significant amount of leverage, or in fact, like no leverage whatsoever. And so we've tried wow. to carry that forward as well. Um, so my grandmother always asked, you know, how's the budget? And, um, you know, we make sure to main, maintain a a very low portfolio-wide leverage ratio to make sure that, you know, when, when you get, go through tough times, which we're all living through right now, um, you know you can see your way to the other side of it. And hopefully, because this is what's always happened in the past, you know, real estate, if you can hang on, will end up being more valuable uh, at some point in the future. It's a good S lesson. Steve over here trying to get people to lever up. 95% LTVs. No, no, we don't do that. Actually, <laughs> our private book, average loan to value is around 65%. So we're extremely conservative On lenders. On Cameron Stevens' values. <laughs> which are very conservative. <laughs> Unless it's high-rise land in Markham. Unless it's suburban high-rise land. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we chat a little bit Jeff about that. Jeff doesn't like, uh, anyway, we'll get into that maybe in the rapid fire. We'll ask him what his uh, yeah. value per square foot of Markham land well, is. Maybe we'll... we'll, we'll uh, switch gears a, a little tiny bit, but uh, I always say that I think Hallmark and TAS are the two like coolest companies uh, that are operating in the development business now. So I wanted to read um, this little quote from your your LinkedIn page, where it says um, that one of your core values is design as an as an investment in a tool, and, and you, it says we see great design as a tool to positively impact the places we invest in. We are driven to do things differently and to make things better. Our approach to design is to always be thoughtful 
aspirational and bold, doing what's needed to elevate our buildings, streets, and neighborhoods. We aim to raise the bar and define a new standard for design and development in Toronto. I just wanted to, you know, maybe get your a little bit of your opinion on, you know, what what factors went into the, to, you know, trying to be a cool brand, and do you think that that it, in the end that it that it pays off, that it pays to be a design driven developer? Yeah, you're, no, you're great. a cool guy like Jeff. Just I'm not as cool as Maz. I'm not as cool as Maz. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, so, I, I, going back to when I started, I mean, I was uh, a young guy who loved. Um, I, I'm still like a relatively young guy, right? <laughs> compared, compared to my peers in the industry, at least yeah, I am for sure. Uh, so, there wasn't a lot of investment in design, and being a young person, I felt in some ways that we were kind of designing buildings for me as like a target market. And I felt that there would be for a lot of businesses, you know, outside of real estate value that they could put on great design that would help them grow their business and hire the right people and keep the right people. And also one of the things that makes us a little bit different than like maybe a traditional condominium developer is that we build, we develop or build to own, except when we're building residential condominiums. So our off our retail and office projects, we are building to lease and own long-term for cash flow, And so I think your perspective changes a little bit when you plan on owning this building for, um, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, you look at investing differently. So where can I invest in this project that will allow me to save operating costs? over the, the life cycle of the project. That would be one thing. And so you could invest in things that people would never see. Um, that's not necessarily the design I think we're talking about on the website, but it's part of it. Uh, where you know if you invest in a, a higher performing mechanical system that will save you operating costs over yeah. the next five or 10 years, that's, that's a good investment to make when you're not um, stabilizing it and flipping it. So I think um, that's one thing that makes us different. And then also, I think more to the to the quote on the website is, how are we going to keep this building occupied? And how are we going to command the rents that we feel um, we need or, or deserve over the long term? And if we invest in developing a building that's sort of the best building in its neighborhood from a design perspective and from a um, and from like a like a performance perspective, then I think we will be able to keep our buildings fuller at higher rents than our competition. So you might not see the immediate payback, um, but you'll see that payback over the next sort of five, 10, 15, 20 years. And so I think we have, um, we have proven this out. And the best example to use is probably our most recent office development, which stabilized over the course of the summer, which is 80 Atlantic. And this project um, was a very ambitious project, not because of its scale, but because of the new sort of building typology that we were, we were, we were creating. So uh, 80 Atlantic is the second phase of a two-phase project. The first phase was an adaptive reuse of a uh, old warehouse building in Liberty Village, which was 60 Atlantic. Which is, is that the carpet factory? No, no. it's it's not the carpet factory. It's two blocks away from the carpet okay. factory. Um, so our plan was to, you know, adaptively reuse this uh, warehouse building and then sit on the parking lot until such time as sort of Liberty Village 
um, became a viable place to develop new office or uh, potentially residential at some point in the future, although that's still not allowed. Um, so we finished 60 Atlantic and we said, okay, the market's like improving slightly, but no one was really thinking about like new office at that, that point. And we said, do you know what? I think there's an opportunity here to uh, look at this site a little bit differently. So if we're going to be developing new office, we don't want to be competing just on price and location to other developments that were going ahead in the downtown core and the, the downtown west. And so we had to come up with a different type of building to compete where we could position ourselves either on par or as a premium product. At that time, the Ontario Building Code had just been updated to allow uh, wood structures to be taller. And um, so we said, let's try this out. Let's see if we can create a premium product that will allow us to build you know, a financially successful office building in Liberty Village where no one else had sort of contemplated that for generations. And so we you know, took, the, took the risk and you know, within a few, you know, short months, uh, you know, and during construction, we ended up having the building fully leased at above market rents with... So some when you the, went under construction, you had no leasing we, in place? We had one lease Boy. for one floor, so we were like 25% leased. Hmm. Um, and that was like, whether we needed to do it or not, you know, was kind of an open debate in our office. It, Overall, it's a 90,000 square foot office building, so it wasn't you know, like a million square foot downtown office tower. Um, but it gave us the confidence that, hey, someone else sees the value in this design that, that we thought they would. Um, so we ended up um, moving ahead, and you know, before we were finished construction, we were fully leased and stabilized with, or fully leased uh, with you know, the, um, the highest rents in, in Liberty Village, which was, you know, amazing validation and to, to the point about design, investing in design, I think in each of those cases, our, our, our first tenant that signed on was a company called Jackman. Um, they're kind of a management consultant slash uh, um, branding agency focusing on retail. And our largest tenant is Universal Music Canada. And both of them saw this building as a chance Maybe I should talk about the building a little bit. It's a new heavy timber office building. So it's like, you know, your brick and beam warehouse buildings that you see all throughout downtown east and downtown west, but it's built using um, new technology, glue lamb beams and, and columns, and uh, old sort of NLT floors, which are basically um, two by tens um, nailed together. Uh, on the long on the long side, um, so it really ended up creating this new brick and beam 2.0 type building. And anyway, so the, yeah, for them, yeah, it's, it's it was stunning. It's stunning. In for, I mean, for them, it was uh, a way to reposition their business uh, and present a different image. face to their different image yeah. to their to their clients and, and, and customers. And was this your idea or like where did this design concept come from it was something that we you know had been thinking about doing we'd been buying brick and beam office buildings and, and renovating them and so like 
you know, we liked yeah. the idea and, you know, there was a lot of news about the building code being changed. Our architect really wanted to do it too. So they were sort of pushing and prodding us. Our structural engineer wanted us to do it. So everyone, everyone really wanted to, to work on a new heavy timber uh, building I mean, the, with the rules changing and being in the news. And so we were the first in, in the city to do it. Uh, and, and say it, investing in that design um, ended up allowing us to have a much more financially successful project and hopefully a much more uh, enduring sort of financial success in that project than we otherwise would have if we just built it in concrete or steel. Um, so I like I think for us it's the the proof is in the pudding we see it in in how our buildings perform and so we're going to continue to make that a focus of our of our business and plus like you know development is hard you guys know that uh, and if you're not really passionate about the project that you're working on then you know it becomes it becomes a grind I mean it's a grind at the best of times but you know, I think for us, we really, really want to be passionate about the types of projects that we're working on and feel like we're uh, improving the city, you know, with every project that we do. So I think f- for us, design is, is really important and will continue to be yeah, really I think, important. I think there's so much value in, in design. I think, you know, I, I spent some time working in a in an office building in suburban Richmond Hill and then did one in suburban Vaughan is depressing <laughs> in comparison to being in a, in a cool shop. I would go into, you know, Chemez's office at center court and he lived in a allied brick and beam project. Well, this is so cool. It'd be exciting to be, you know, in, in, in this type of project. And they even had Michael Emery on one of the, you know, the commercial real estate podcasts. And he said in the nineties, you know, they had just, you know, bought and renovated a bunch of these buildings. And then the, the, uh, you know, the recession hit and they had, they did all right because uh, people thought their buildings were cool and they were willing to, to stay there. Their employees liked them. And, and it wasn't even something that they had considered that people were much more likely to, to stay in one of these projects as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, one of the tall towers where it was just all the same. It's just all the same product and, and, and easy to, uh, uh, to exit it. So kind of kind of interesting that they kind of fell into it. But Yeah, I think also, you know, you end up based on you know, the types of projects that, that we've bought embedded in these, you know, really great neighborhoods that have so many amenities and such character. And so, you know, we're investing a lot in the design uh, of our projects, but, you know, they benefit from being in these neighborhoods where there's all these other sort of creative people opening up great restaurants and retail stores and other developers coming up with with also great projects. So uh, it ends up sort of feeding on each other. They end up feeding on each other and become like this virtuous circle almost. So we think as, as, as we go forward, a lot of our projects are very geographically concentrated. And so um, each one of our projects that we um, execute on actually also improves all of our other projects in, in the neighborhood. Um, so it's great. I yeah. mean, I, I think, you know, we've, we've managed to find a way to um, have design be part of, you know, the core to our business in a way that's financially successful. And, and you know, it's something that uh, as a real estate developer, you can really be passionate about. So it's good. So <clears throat> talked a little bit about office, but you do have a few uh, PBRs and one con. Is it just the one condo with Great Golf home? 
home condos? Is that uh, the only project under construction? No, we now? have we have two other uh, mid to high rise residential condominiums uh, under construction where we're partnered in, in con- other condo developers' projects. Yeah, and then we have a stacked condo townhouse project in in North Etobicoke. Nice. Yeah. So tell us a bit about. Uh, I am interested in the, 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 the partnership with Great Golf. It's a very unique site. It's kind of an island. Is there one thing or two things about that? that I mean, other than just being like a, a unique location and an interesting sort of venture into the east, you guys have been predominantly West Enders. I know you also have the site. The I used to live at Queen & Jones. The first house I ever bought was there. My, my local 7-Eleven is now a art gallery that you guys have uh, are, are developing an apartment building there. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm interested in, in your approach to the East going forward and, and particularly the, the home project. How's that going and what can we expect there? Um, I mean, I, I've always really liked the East. Uh, I spend most of my time in the West. Um, most of my friends now are in the East. So, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Um, Where in the East? Is it beaches or is it Beaches, Leslieville's? Upper Beaches, Leslieville, like all over the place there. Upper um, Beaches. <laughs> so... I've always really liked the East from a, from a real estate investment perspective. Not the far, not the far East, not the beaches. Uh, you know, so be, although, like, we have a mid-rise condo project there with Fieldgate uh, at the corner of oh, Queen and that. yeah, Queen and uh, Woodbine. I noticed you changed from wood to concrete there. Is there, is there we, a story we, there? We, you we, asked, we should ask Leith that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's a loaded question, isn't it? No, it, <laughs> a it, bit? It, it doesn't. It's not a loaded question. So I think you know when we're um, it's different in res than office office. We can leave it all exposed. Um, you can have these great big floor plates and you can see the wood and residential. You end up for like fire code and for soundproofing purposes, have to drywall it all up anyways. And actually the, the geotechnical, um, like soil conditions on the site made it such that building a wood building, uh, was actually too light of a building and we would have had to pay a significant premium to actually tie the building down so it wouldn't float away. Uh, So there's a few reasons reasons, um, that we ended up making that change. And, you know, I I think that project, you know, regardless of whether it's concrete or wood is going to be a a great project that raises the bar in the neighborhood. And you're starting to see the brick come on, the masonry come on, um, now and so um you know that one a lot of work for a small project like with a lot of these mid-rises um but you know we're we're happy with the way it's turned out um i I, I took some pictures of some of the nimby signs on the lawns it would say no big box condos in the beaches and i'm like what's that even mean (laughs) so you had had to deal with some some local yeah i i think you know the beaches is is one area where the beach beaches i i'm I'm not a part of this debate i think i I think they call it the beach the beach so the the beach is one of the more vocal neighborhoods when it comes to real estate development and you know going back to the story about selling this retail building that we bought you know years and years ago i think you know what a lot of people love about the beach is this you know great sort of vibrant neighborhood uh, character with the retail as an amenity. And I really, you know, fear that without more development, you know, that retail is going to die. It already is dying it like is. a slow, slow death. And yeah. so I, I think that the turnover is unbelievable with yeah. the tenants there. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I hope that, you know, through this, um, COVID time, people will, um, not take for granted, you know, some of these small businesses, uh, and realize that you kind of need people around to have these small businesses be successful and maybe look in a more sort of balanced way about, you know, the benefits that development can bring, not just the costs. Um, so you're asking about power street. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always liked the East as a real estate investment opportunity because most of the infrastructure investment that's coming into the downtown core is happening, you know, to the East. And that's changed a little bit uh, recently with the Ontario line and, you know, going West to end at exhibition station. But, you know, as the downtown relief line was always East, you've got East Harbor, you've got the West Donlands, you've got all of this like millions and millions of dollars of infrastructure investment coming in. And that's only, that will only um, serve to sort of improve the area over time. So we, um, we actually bid on the Power Street lands competing against Great Golf when it was brokered. And it was only about um, maybe a third to half the, the block was old Singtao uh, newspaper building. Um, a lot of residential development uh, advertised through Singtao. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, so we, we ended up losing the bid, but you know had a conversation with Great Golf, who we were partners with on a site in North Etobicoke. Uh, and they asked if we wanted to be their partner. And we said, sure, we love the site. Um, so that's how that project came together. But then you know t- maybe two years into it, as we were sort of hammering away at uh, getting through the development process, there ended up being an opportunity to assemble the whole block. And so Great Golf, you know, managed to put it all together and really uh, were able to create um, a really unique uh, development site in the, in the downtown core of the city of Toronto where you have a whole city block really cool. available. Yeah. And like besides, you know, the West Donlands where you're creating sort of development sites and, um, you know, from, from nothing, there's, there haven't been really that many opportunities that I've seen to have a full city block available. Um, so it, it allowed us to sort of be very creative in terms of, you know, how we met the street and how we masked the site. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing it complete because the position of the, the project, you know, um, between the two sort of downtown arterial roads, Richmond and Adelaide, make it the, the project, you know, everyone will see. Yeah. As they're coming in off and of the in and, Richmond, no, in and out of the city. The thing is, if you're leaving the city to go to the DVP, you go up Adelaide, and if you're coming off the DVP to come into the city, you come on Richmond. So, like, there are two major through fares that that everyone goes by, and I drive by them. I drive by it every day, usually twice, and uh, I love it. I think it's a great site. But let me ask you something. Uh, you mentioned the West Donlands, and this is maybe a topic a little bit that's going to bring a little bit more controversy, but. I w- I've been um, just in COVID. I've been doing some workouts in the park there, it's outside. Me and a buddy, run. We have some weights, and so I've been going there two or three, four mornings a week. And I can't stop but think, it seems like such a waste of space. And I say that because we're building all these eight, nine, ten, twelve-story buildings in a place, in my opinion, that should be more densely developed without a lot of neighbors on the tracks. And you walk around the city, and, and I think that we're, there's all this 
contentious, you know, verbiage from the residents, the NIMBYs, you know, less density, less density, smaller buildings. I don't know. I mean, I, I just curious in your opinion. I look at them like in 20 years, we're going to look at these buildings and say, why did we build eight stories and not 16? Or why did we buy, build 20 and not 60? Because now we're out of land. Immigration hasn't slowed down. It's still a great city. Where are we supposed to put people? Is it a waste? Not a waste of space. I mean, that, that sounds very harsh. But I mean, you guys are doing a lot of... It's know, a missed opportunity. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great way to describe it. I mean, only... I think, um, you know, it's easier to look at these things in hindsight and see what's happened around and how the city has grown, continue yeah. to grow and, and change. But, you know, the whole um, discussion right now, uh, which is a really important discussion within development around inclusionary zoning and how inclusionary zoning is coming to the city of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you take that and you go to the West Donlands and say, hey, like, if there are eight stories, why wouldn't we make them 30 stories and have eight stories be affordable housing? And and exactly. so for the, I think it was the Ontario government that owned the lands? Yeah. Um, or was the it? city of Toronto. I, I, can't, I yeah, can't remember. I can't remember. But anyways, um, you know, the, the city doesn't have many, many assets that they can easily use to bring more affordable housing to, to people who really need it. And without, you know, on a private develop, private development, you know, I think without incentive to build affordable housing, there's not going to be, it's going to be very difficult to build a lot of new affordable housing units through inclusionary zoning. Um, so here's an opportunity where they have the land and if they zone it for twice as much density, it doesn't cost them anything. Right. And then, and you can end up, you know, through that additional density, get affordable housing essentially for free. Um, I think that's a missed opportunity, you know, and, and so I don't, I don't know. I I think, like I said, or like, like you said, Ben, it's a missed opportunity, but probably, you know, is only clear looking in in hindsight hindsight, hopefully, you know, the city will look at these, these things differently, which I think they are now, um, bringing forward their, their land in order to develop affordable housing as opposed to what will end up being like luxury mid-rise. Yeah. Uh, but in, I've been looking at your, 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 your site with Fieldgate and the beaches or the beach. I mean, I don't know if you guys, if it was a contentious application, but I look at that site, it's a boutique mid-rise building. I mean, the way I look at it, it should be double the size. You know, look at that. It's a, it's a major intersection. It's a, triple a location as far as neighborhoods that people want to be in being like everyone it's it's you know it's coveted to be in the beach i don't know i just think we're going to look back in this and say uh, you know that would have been a good that's a corner site i mean i look at all of these these create to sites and all these things where they want affordable housing right you look at the one over in my neighborhood at victoria park and uh and gerard uh we mentioned it a bit when we had bob bozevsky on the show i did a you know i did a market study for for them when they were looking at uh at purchasing it and it's all like low-rise buildings right you know it's like walking distance to the the warden subway station so um 
Warden? Victoria Park. Yeah, sorry. Victoria Park subway station, right? And it's like these these towers should be 30 stories tall, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not infringing on any low-rise developments. Uh, they're onto the tracks. Uh, there's going to be, you know, part of the, the requirement is affordable housing. So, you know, they would get so much more of it if they allowed for taller towers. And then, you know, so we had just had John English on the show and, you know, and they're they're on leased land and, and they're building 30% affordable housing. And, you know, in the distillery, they have the 30 story towers already there yeah, yeah. yet Across this, the they have this giant parking lot and they're like you know 11 no, 10 got, got cut 10 stories or yeah it's <laughs> it's just, it makes absolutely zero sense that that those those buildings would be nine and ten stories zero sense whatsoever from, from right? a from a developer uh developer's perspective someone who wants to go and and build uh, new uh residential housing units it's really hard, it's really difficult to to see because a lot of the 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 neighborhoods uh, and the councilors who pander to those neighborhoods are have like a more of a progressive bent like very progressive downtown councilors I mean most councilors in, in Toronto are very progressive uh, and this is not like a political statement saying bad or good but what I'm saying is I think it's a little hypocritical when Building more housing is much more of a progressive policy than the policy that they're pursuing now, which is to try to restrict as much housing as possible in these neighborhoods. Because you build more housing, there'll be a greater supply, there'll be more affordable housing for that, the people that, that who want to. That seems so logical to the and, three of us, but why is that, no one figuring that out? Yeah, Airbnb, know, like co- cognitive you know? dissonance. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Like I, I think it's really difficult from a landowner's perspective. Like what the city of Toronto does is just you know put money into landowners' pockets because those pieces of land that can be developed end up becoming that much more valuable um, because of the restrictive land use policies that they put in place, and so it ends up being like this weird situation where you would think as a as a progressive politician you'd want to build as much housing as possible, you know, to be able to create affordable housing for for the residents of your city. Um, but in fact, like what they're doing is just, you know, making, you know, rich landowners richer um, through their restrictive zoning policies. Yeah, and Doug Ford, he's taking it on the chin about uh, getting rid of some of these conservation uh, authority things in the uh, in in the green belt. But I, I mean, my point is is that there wouldn't be as much pressure on the conservatives and, and, and Doug Ford and Steve Clark about creating, you know, more housing supply and, and, and more affordable supply if we allowed more development in the city of Toronto, right? So if, so if I have a family and I want, uh, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 square feet, wouldn't it be great if I could live in a brand new triplex in the annex or in the beaches or Leslieville or or wherever that, yeah, you know, at a... At a significant, significantly discounted uh, uh, price from you know uh, um, you know a downtown condominium, but I don't have to move to you know to East Gwillimbury or to Sutton to 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 get it right. So their their restrictive policies have created that additional demand and pressure on the greenbelt, and, yeah, and they don't want to make they don't want to make that connection. They want to just. Doug Ford's doing something bad. We need to fight it. I'm like, you are part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think, you know, and 
Um, not speaking specifically about sort of environmental or greenbelt policies, because I, I don't know the details of the changes that they're trying to make. Yeah. Like we're, Jeff, we're Jeff doesn't really go north of Bluer, so we're, we're, <laughs> we're way so up there. Me neither, but they're getting mad, very mad about it. Uh, <laughs> That's but all I know. <laughs> I, I think the the reality is is that there's way too much regulation, and it takes way too long to build stuff here in Ontario, uh, and it doesn't have to be that way while still maintaining all the protections that we need to have like to build a to build a subway we have to go through like 10 years of uh in environmental planning we've talked about this uh, <laughs> like it's it's so it's so asinine like if if it's such a critical aspect to to building the city and making it successful we have to find a way to speed up those timelines and and yes that will end up benefiting um or in a lot of cases probably benefiting uh housing development you saw um i guess tricon got a ministerial zoning order for their affordable housing project in in the distillery district i mean because it's just taking so long to get that affordable housing approved like two years three years four years you know it's it's crazy and then it's going to take another three or four years to actually build it if we want to if we want good things uh, that will benefit everybody in the city of toronto we need to figure out a way to cut through some of the bureaucracy and red tape and you know, I sound like this this arch conservative guy, you, you but I, I'm not. And you know, I think even in my 10, 12 years, 13 years working in this industry, you know, it's taking now twice as long to get something approved as it did even 10, 12 years ago. And it should be going. We should we should be smart enough to be making it go the other way. So without the elimination of the democratic process, and I've said this on previous shows, but... Well, you want to be the benevolent dictator of Ontario, Steve? <laughs> well, I mean, you go back to building subway lines in, in communist China that could build a kilometer of subway in a, in a week. We take four years for a kilometer. So I don't know. I'm not saying the benevolent dictatorship is the way we should go, but maybe somewhere in between what the, we're doing currently and, and you know, the extreme on the other side. My, my challenge is, you know, we look at at, at uh, democracy every four years potent we have the potential of a new regime you yeah know? it's and very difficult to build long-term infrastructure very difficult it's impossible on a four-year it's impossible election you cannot do it it cycle. takes you yeah. it takes you two years to get comfortable in the job you're in the job for a year and then you're campaigning for a year yeah like there's there's no time and then the new regime comes in look at the difference between the ontario liberals versus the ontario conservatives I mean, it happens at every level of government. I mean, John Tory is in his second term, and I think he's doing a great job, and he's finally, you know, like has a bit more political sway, but it's taken six years. Yeah. And he said he's not going to run another term, and then we're going to have a whole new, you know, list of rules at, at City Hall, potentially. But segue into a, a question that we wanted to ask you is, if Jeff Hall became the mayor tomorrow, what would be your what top... Would be the first thing <laughs> I do? The, I was going to say the first thing, but the top three things that you'd... Uh, <laughs> You'd have on your list to, to well, get done. I, I, number one is I would lift all the restrictions on small businesses, uh, restaurants, fitness facilities, retail, hair and nail salons. Uh, I think you know what we're going through right now is is a tragedy, um, and I don't envy the politicians having to make these these difficult decisions. But you know, I think we're going to wake up you know, a year from now and realize that, you know, the, the cost to all of this, um, will be much more significant than the benefit in, in lives lost, um, but also in livelihood. So that would be number one. I, I agree. I like it. 
Um, Number two? From a planning perspective? Yeah. You know, I I live in a semi in Harvard Village, probably like 200 meters from a subway station. You know, if I was the benevolent dictator of Toronto or Ontario, I would say like at some point you have to open up these neighborhoods for, for development. And, you know, I think the mid-rise guidelines, policies that have been in place are are nice. They look good on paper, but they're extremely difficult to execute on because a lot of the um, the existing sort of three-story buildings on on avenues are are more valuable as the buildings as the income-producing properties than they are uh, as land. And then it's just if it takes three years to get a mid-rise project, it ends up being not worth cost. No. So I think we need to make it easier to develop in the downtown core uh, and open up these large sort of swaths of yellow belt to development um, because we're not we're not getting that type of housing that people actually want um, with the policies that we have. I mean, people point to, oh, well, Barcelona and Paris and have six-story buildings. You know, that's what we have here. But, you know, they have six-story buildings everywhere. 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 And they have, they, they don't, they don't have, have two-story and three-story buildings in between. Paris has 60-some-odd subway and LRT lines, too. Like, yeah. their, their subway system is as or more complex than New York's. And I don't know if people realize that, but you could literally take the subway and LRT from anywhere in the city. And I'm not t- talking major intersections, tiny intersections, yeah. to the I, other end of the city in... 17 minutes like it's 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 incredible i lived there for a year so i it bothers me when people bring up like paris why can't we be more like paris right and i'm like well you only travel to the the greatest tourist parts of it and then look at how much it costs to live there right yeah (laughs) it is very very expensive expensive. and it's also our our country our city is an infant in comparison to that city i mean they're they've been developing the major European cities for hundreds and hundreds more years than Toronto. I mean, we're, we're just babies compared yeah. to that. So yeah. like that, it's it, the, 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 unfortunately the car is, has damaged the look of cities, right? And the way we plan cities around a car, as opposed to planning cities about around walking and people. riding a horse. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, I, I would make it easier, I, I guess taking a step back, I would just make it easier to, Less regulation, easier to build, um, easier to start a business, easier to like, you know, we have some retail potential retail tenants that want to open up uh, a new, say, restaurant in one of our stores. And they have to go through like a minor variance process, wait a year, be, you know, subject to all the NIMBYs in the neighborhood because they don't have, you know, enough parking and down to, in the downtown core to meet their zoning requirements for a restaurant. Like it's all it's all like so uh, backwards and illogical. You know when the whole focus of the city is to sort of build you know uh, a city around people uh, and be open for business and and not sort of build it around cars. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I had a question. I had a question on here that, you know, I do a lot of traveling around the city, just, you know, look, obviously looking at sites. And then now that things aren't open, I'm just, you know, <laughs> visiting around. And I noticed that a lot of the new shops are either a cafe or a cannabis shop. How, how what, what are you seeing in your, in your kind of your new, new projects? So what, what, what's, what's the mix of uh, tenants you're saying? Um, well, 
cannabis is one of the only sort of retail tenants that are actually doing deals right now. Uh, as you can expect, uh, being a retail retailer who's been uh, well, they're allowed to be forced, open. forced to shut down, uh, allowed to reopen with significant investment in um, safety protocols, forced to shut down again. Um, like, you know, they're just trying to survive, like running the, the business that they have. They're not doing new deals. So I think that what, what you'll end up seeing, I think, going forward, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I think that's still a story yet to be written because leading up to COVID, uh, it, the, the two sort of fastest growing industries that would take retail were, were like F&B restaurants and fitness and they're the ones who have been most impacted by by this you know i expect you know i i'm already seeing you know restaurant uh owners be very entrepreneurial and opening up new types of concepts that are sort of pandemic proof smaller spaces more geared towards takeout making sure they have a patio um so i i have a lot of confidence that the entrepreneurs in in these industries will figure out ways to 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 open up new types of businesses and, and, and thrive. Um, but it's hard to say because, you know, there's not a lot of retailers out there, uh, doing deals right now. So if your question was, maybe your question was more towards like in, uh, in a new project, what would be the ideal tenant mix? Uh, or was that well, just, I, just curious like who, who was, who, who, who's looking, you know, is there flower shops? Is there uh, daycare spaces or, you know, that's one the other thing I noticed is a, a decent amount of daycare spaces taking up, you know, small retail, uh, spots. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of it will be depending on where, uh, where you are. So I think, you know, areas like the Danforth, areas like the beach, maybe some areas in Etobicoke um, will have a really tough time finding new tenants to replace the tenants that have gone out of business just because there's so much retail and not a lot of people. But, you know, King West, you know, Prime Queen Queen West, uh, we own a lot of buildings on Ossington and and we've had, you know, some... um, some success in, in getting new tenants even during COVID. Um, so those uh, prime sort of local, but also destination type retail strips will will end up, I think, coming back, you know, quicker. Uh, but I'm not sure who takes, you know, one 2,000 square foot storefront along kilometer 12 of the Danforth. You know, going east from uh, the viaduct. It's my biggest pet peeve in this city. It's like we have two subway lines. One's up and down Young. Well, I guess it's called three, but we have the Young line, the university line, which is the same subway line. Then we have Bloor. Like, why on earth do we have subway out to Scarborough along Danforth, but you can hardly even get a permit to renovate your home, let alone build a condo there. Like it's like we have the transit, the infrastructure's in place. It's been hundreds and thousands, millions and millions of dollars of having, uh, putting it there. But you know, let's let the neighbors control uh, the, the narrative or, or the policy because 
I guess I don't know. It, yeah. it the problem, yeah, the problem is that the, the the sites aren't very deep, right? With the laneway in behind both of them, so it makes it very difficult, especially yeah. with the neighborhood designation behind and have to do the step backs. There's just yeah. no pro, there's no project there, right? Yeah. Well, so. the, the policy should be rewritten, but anyway, that's. Can, can I have my uh, third wish as yeah. a benevolent dictator? <laughs> yes. I don't think I ever got to it. The second one was like just making it easier to develop all over the place. But I think I think Toronto now has an opportunity to really take a step up when it comes to uh, a place where people should want to live and should want to start a business. Um, you know, Toronto, I think, has everything going for it right now. And, and I would be screaming from the rooftops, you know, come here, start a business, come here, you know, go to school, um, bring your family here. Um, and I, I think that over the next five or 10 years, uh, if we're smart, if we play our cards right, you know, Toronto could, you know, be on par with, or at least, you know, within, um, striking distance, within striking distance of real, the real sort of global gateway cities. And, um, and so, you know, I would do everything I could. And part of that is, is allowing for more development for affordable housing, allowing for, uh, more development for maybe building the new type of office that, that people will want to start their businesses in. Um, but it's it's a mindset and it's a um, it's a it's a sales pitch that I would be trying to get everybody here in Toronto behind uh, because I think you know if we're able to do that I think the the benefits could be shared in a way that where where everyone would win and uh, and I think that's you know the type of leadership we need right now is really sort of thinking and planning uh, for the future in an aspirational way and say, like, I, I think this, we can do this if we put our minds to it. And, and I think, you know, we deserve to, we deserve to, to try. And, um, and I think, you know, if we, if we can do that, I think Toronto has a real, you know, good chance of, of really becoming much more of a destination, um, for, for people, for capital, for thought leadership, um, you know, I think Toronto's poised to, to be that next great city. It's great. It's a great point. So quick question on, on that, just to bring it back to Hallmark, where, where do you see, um, where would you like to see Hallmark in, in that same time period in the next five, or you can call it 10 years, obviously you're one office, one shop in, in one city, any plans to have another office, in another city, other countries, or you were focused on, East of <laughs> East of Young, West of Bathurst, South of Bloor. We've we've thought about it a lot. I think there's an incredible amount of opportunity here still in the city of Toronto, and you know our strategy is to continue, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, um, you know, make the right deal, um, capitalize it with the right uh, partners, um, build the with the right design, uh, and, um, you know, move on to the, the next one. And so I, I mentioned that we have three purpose-built rental projects in the pipeline. We'd like to get those built and hopefully we'll have a few more, uh, underway, um, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. So right now our, our portfolio is skewed more towards, uh, office and, and retail. And so we'd like it to be, you know, maybe, um, you know, a third, a third, a third, or a quarter retail and, you know, 37 and a half percent office and 37 and a half percent, uh, 
res. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes you have to remember, you know, why we're able to get to where uh, we are today. And I think one of the reasons we've been successful is because we know our target markets better than our competition. And as soon as we go to Montreal, as soon as we go to Vancouver, as soon as we go to New York or, you know, someplace else, you know, we become we become the dumb money. And, you know, I think our ability to originate deals, our ability to understand sort of the differences in the real estate block to block, the the differences in how city planners uh, would apply the rules and, and guidelines from block to block, our ability to know what tenants are out there, what they'll, what they'll pay for what type of space. I think that's what has made us successful. So, you know, I, I think our plan is just to continue to keep growing uh, on the same trajectory that we've been growing. And, you know, if 10 years from now we have, instead of 40 or 45 projects, we have 60 or 70 projects and those next sort of 20 or 30 are twice as big as the 40 that came before it or three times as big. I think that's kind of where we want to go. And so continue to continue to build smart. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be looking back when we do the 10 year anniversary of this podcast, you know, we'll, uh, <laughs> which will still be, I'm still, uh, I'm sure it still goes, it'll going be strong. going strong 10 years from Season now. 10. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll have, what I hope will be the the best portfolio of urban real estate in Canada. Nice. A question that we've asked in the past, and I'll frame it a little bit differently. The question we usually ask, is there a deal that you passed on that you wish you had a bought in hindsight, sort of looking back two, three, four years later, but you've been learning over the last 10 years. Like what's your, what's been your biggest mistake? Or has there been one thing where you're like, you know, I, I made the wrong decision and I, I've got, I've got one, I've got one for sure. Yeah. And it, and it speaks to what you had asked me before about where we're going to be in five years and 10 years, or we're going to have an office in a different city. So, um, you know, we went into this eyes wide open, so it's, it's no one's fault, but, uh, our own, um, we, uh, are partners with great golf, uh, in our power street project and, um, a project up in North Etobicoke. And, um, a couple of years ago, they uh, they brought us an opportunity to invest in a this great sort of I think it's two and a half acre uh, site in downtown Calgary, like you know two or three blocks east of the Bow, uh, and you I know, know where this is going. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're I we are long term investors, uh, and we had just seen sort of the first leg down in oil prices, and you know the the price of the land was cheap based on historical trades and said, okay, we're going to buy this and it'll be a, you know, it's like a 3 million square foot mixed use development site. And, you know, um, it turns out that, you know, we weren't buying the dip, uh, the dip, you know, kept on dipping and, (laughs) you know, now we're, um, maybe three years, in yeah, well, it's, uh, it's the oil price turned in 2014, right? So we're was it 14, 14, 15? Yeah, well, we so opened an office in Calgary about six months before it turned, and it's just been a it's been about a five year slug since. Yeah, so I don't know when when we bought it. Maybe it was four years ago that we bought it, uh, like a year after the oil pr- oil price turned. So I mean, I look back on that, and you know, we went into it 
we we didn't put a lot of debt on it. We felt like there's only a certain uh, a certain number of opportunities you get to buy like a whole city block in downtown in any downtown, right? Uh, downtown Calgary, you know, really well positioned between um, the downtown east and and the the central core. And um, to our credit, I guess we said going into it that, it that if it takes 25 years to develop, it'll take 25 years to develop. So it's looking more like 25 years than, <laughs> than five years at this point. Uh, but I, I would say that was probably the deal I wish I didn't do. And our partners are great. Um, you know, no uh, knock on them. Um, you know, I think what it does say is that, you know, we know our market. I'm not saying we won't invest outside of, of Toronto in the future. Um, that one stings yeah. uh, a little bit because, and, and it, and it makes us, you know, you try to learn from these things and makes us sort of second guess whether we should be sort of expanding geographic or do we double down? We've got the platform here. Um, we're able to, I think, create more value because of our, our knowledge and our relationships, uh, here than we are anywhere else. So why not invest here and take advantage of that as opposed to um, invest, you know, in some other city where we're starting from scratch. Yeah, it's difficult to, to helicopter into markets that you're not familiar with. I get asked to do consulting jobs in in London or, or Sudbury or, you know, uh, Ingersoll, these places that uh, I'm just not familiar with. So I just don't yeah. feel comfortable. I try to pitch my clients as I know the GTA, you know, head to toe. I've been to all the locations. I know the developers that built in those areas. I know the projects, right? So um, it's very difficult. Uh, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I had had another question. I know that you have uh, have three kids. Um, just curious how, how you're doing at balancing uh, work and life these days. We always debate, you know, what's the the appropriate amount of hours to to get your job done and feel satisfied, but also not anger your significant other. Uh, my wife uh, has been a saint over the past nine months. Um, we we are um, another reason why I feel very fortunate. We uh, had just bought a place up near Collingwood in January. And so great timing. Yeah. From, <laughs> from March until June, I think my wife was up there with the kids, uh, for 80 to 90% of the time. <laughs> wow. And I, I have been going into the office, uh, from day one. And so I, I, there was this weird, weird experience that I had where everybody I talked to, uh, had never spent more time with their families, uh, during, uh, than they have during this past sort of at that point, you know, three months, six months, and I never spent less time <laughs> with my family. And, um, you know, usually I was, I would look forward to having like a night, you know, free or a weekend free. Uh, and I could go with my friends in, in the city and, you know, pretend like I'm a, uh, bachelor with no responsibility, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same during, or it hasn't been the same during COVID. Different. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think my what I, I'm lucky in that most of our most of our investments are in Toronto, except for the aforementioned project in in Calgary, and um, and most of our projects in Toronto are within like a, a short drive from my office and my house. So I don't have to you know travel a lot 
Uh, my commute's pretty good. I'm usually home by six o'clock for, for dinner time and bedtime with the kids. Um, so my work-life balance, I think is pretty, pretty good or it has been. And so over the, the course of the fall, now that, um, you know, the kids are back in school, it's kind of the, the same type of thing, except, you know, I'm not going out drinking for work, uh, <laughs> <Ever>. for work, <laughs> for work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, you know, everything is a little bit tougher, you know, the ages of my kids, um, five, seven and nine. Um, it's, it's not the worst ages, but it's certainly not the best ages. And, and like, you really need to find places to get out of the house. Like we have, we live in a, um, like a semi in Harbor Village. I think I mentioned that already. And, you know, it can feel pretty small when you can't go to the ROM, you can't go, you don't have like kids sports programs to take them to, uh, don't have dance classes, don't have, um, all these other sort of things, uh, which is why you live in the city, um, to begin with all of these amenities that you have. Um, and so it's been a little bit more challenging, but you know, we're, we're more fortunate than most. And, you know, we have the place up North that we can go to. What we're trying to do is just try to maintain as much, you know, a sense of normalcy as, as possible. And so that goes to like the work-life balance as well. And, you know, even if I wanted to work really hard right now, there's not a lot going on. So (laughs) I don't really have, I don't really have an excuse, um, to stay at, to stay working um, a lot, anyways. I mean, we are we are active. We've bought a couple sites during COVID. We have one that we just waived on and are closing in January, uh, which is exciting for us. But you, you, know, close on, you close on Dufferin recently. Yeah, Dufferin in the spring or summer, and then that's the Flatiron site. No, this is um, this is a site. On Dufferin, just north of Queen, uh, okay. Adrian Rocca is building right across the street three uh, apartment buildings, and we're you know just directly north. Only, uh, only six hundred units coming to market in the next yeah, couple right. weeks. Yeah, right. Yeah. they've already started pre-leasing. Ours yeah. is an employment yeah. conversion. It's going to be a while. It's going to be like three to five years before we get that thing approved. We're we're excited. We we know that area really well. We have lots yeah. of other investments in that area, and so that will hopefully be a, a new purpose-built residential building for us too. Um, a little bit, you know, farther in the future than Adrian's. Right. Um, and then the one that we waved on is entertainment district residential high rise site. Um, so, you know, can you, I, say, I, what, can I believe, you say where I, I believe? No, I can't, I can't <laughs> say, uh, I believe no address. I believe in the future of downtown and we're voting with our dollars. Nice. Uh, so it's always darkest before the dawn and, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping spring 21, it'll be spring, summer 21 is going to be like this euphoric return to some, yeah. somewhat close I actually, to I actually think it's going to be the fall. Cause here's my prediction is that it's going to, it should be the spring, but then everyone's going to sort of take a look around and be like, Ooh, it's getting nice out and summer's coming. I don't feel comfortable going back to the office. And then everyone's going to enjoy a nice final summer of working from home and, and a, a bit of sort of like some restrictions and then fall's going to hit 2021 and everyone's like, all right, I've had enough. I got two summers of, of lockdown <laughs> or quote unquote working from home. So that's, that's October, 2021. It's just going to be a rocket ship. Rocket ship. You heard it here first <laughs> on the podcast. I kind of stole some of that from uh, Benjamin Tal. But anyways, listen, we, we've, <laughs> yeah. we've been a good uh, a good chunk of time here, and so we'd like to end off with a little segment we call uh, Rapid Fire. Yeah. <clears throat> so you have 
yes or no questions are sort of five words or less to, to the best of your ability. And yes or uh, no and or well, five Well, you know, just sort of very short, very short answers. Okay. Very okay. short yeah. answers. Right. Yeah. Question number one. Do you ever wear a tie? No. <laughs> For <laughs> weddings. Do you own a tie? Yes. <laughs> How many? <laughs> I, last time I looked, I, I can't even remember. can't even remember. I don't know. Counselor ties. Come on. Come on. Well, okay. I mean, if you have under five, you would know. <laughs> okay, I got a question. Uh, is the 45-degree angular plane transition stupid? Yes. Are floor-to-ceiling windows a must to sell new condos in 2021? I hope not, because we don't have floor-to-ceiling windows in, in all of ours. Interesting. Interesting. Is the Sky Dome a heritage property? No. Oh, Ooh, wow. I love the Sky Dome. Okay, don't get me wrong. I love the Sky Dome. You know, everybody who grew up, you know, cheering for the Blue Jays in the city of Toronto, like it's an iconic property, but it's also like a fortress of concrete that, you know, I don't know <laughs> what, what you, of concrete. What that should you, be its new name. Uh, what, you can, it. what you could do with it. Okay, part B, do you renovate the Sky Dome or do you rebuild it entirely, tear it down and create some massive... Uh, real estate development play with it that's not that's not a yes or no question <laughs> uh, i know i kind of went off script but I, I i would say that i've been to a lot of ballparks in the u.s you know whenever my wife and i would travel to a city we try to go see a baseball game i'm not like a biggest fan of baseball but it's just a great experience to go to a, a baseball stadium Absolutely. and the rogers center does not meet you know, even the lowest sort of standard for baseball stadiums. I think the city of Toronto and the Blue Jays deserve something a lot more iconic. I, I mean, it's iconic, a lot more functional mm-hmm. as a It would be nice, in my opinion, to keep the dome, if you can, at some level, just for the skyline, but just gut everything. And, and I, I was in San Francisco two or three years ago. They have food courts. They have kids' play lounges with slides. They have hot tubs. They have... Yeah, I've been yeah, yeah. I've been to almost every major new ballpark. Yeah, so it's it's, it's a little the, the experience is definitely lacking in in yeah. Toronto. But yeah. you know I'm the same nostalgic about the dome and would love to, to see if there would be any way that they could actually do a full full gut job. But anyways, uh, oh okay, Steve, it's your turn. Okay, there are two rail deck park concepts. Do you like all park version or do you like the version with residential apartments? I like the version with residential apartments. Very good. Very good. Uh, we always have to, uh, a couple dumb questions. When they changed the name of Hull to Gatineau, were you upset about that? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, ben wrote this one down. Another. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Does that happen? <laughs> yeah. I don't even know that. This is Ben's uh, also a dumb question. Generally speaking, who is smarter? <laughs> Market research consultants or development lenders? <laughs> <laughs> Market research consultants. <laughs> yes. Good. Yeah, oh, that was a layup for you. <laughs> okay. Especially when it comes to suburban high-rise land. Oh, values. here we go. <laughs> what is land worth in Markham? High-rise density land. Uh, is, is there a number lower than zero? <laughs> there, there is. There is. Uh, Hardwood dangerous. flooring or polished concrete flooring? Polished concrete. Nice. I like polished concrete. Who do you go in this industry for advice or who do you look up to as a mentor? We have a lot of great partners and it would be hard to single any one of them out, but all of our partners have been in this business for longer than, than I have. And so I think, you know, having 
being able to to draw upon their knowledge and experience has been incredibly valuable uh, over the years. So I would say our partners collectively. <laughs> Very good answer. Very, Very good, good answer. answer. He's a politician okay. A couple more and then, and then we'll, we'll call it quits. Okay. The city needs to raise more revenue. Would you like, what do you think is better? Increase the property taxes or increase the land transfer tax? Property taxes. Road tolls. Road tolls are good. Yes. I'm all for the road tolls. Um, what was more exciting for the city of Toronto, the Raptors championship run two years ago or the 92-93 Jays back-to-back World Series? Raptors championship. I'm a big Raptors fan since day one. Yeah. Did, you, I, I did also, you go to a game in the Sky Dome? I did. Yeah, that was a question. <laughs> That's yeah. the question. That was, did I go to a, one like of the Raptors cha- games in the Sky Dome? Yeah, I did. 1995, I think. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I, went to, I went to the Chicago Bulls game where uh, the Raptors beat the... 72 and 10 Chicago Bulls. Nice. Damon Stoudemire. Nice. That was nice. good years. Good years. Beauty. Who would you like to, not that you're, uh, you've listened to that many episodes, but you're going to listen now. Who would you like to hear? Who do you think would be a good guest on the Toronto Under Construction podcast? How about like Peter Gilgan? Yes. Ooh. Yes. I was thinking about, uh, I was thinking about trying to get He'd Peter. be a great one, yeah. Yeah. Or I'm thinking like you have to be someone who can be controversial that, that I think that's, those are the more interesting ones. Yeah. Although you, you've already done Brad. Your, uh, your, your level of controversy today was a little lower than expected and you're almost at zero F bombs. Yeah. Would you like to throw anyone under the bus <laughs> at this point in time? Who do you hate the most in this industry? <laughs> yeah, who's your worst partner? I'm, I like people. I like people. I think people, uh, if, if I could only work on, great projects with great people for the rest of my career like that's my goal and so i i think you know one great thing about the real estate industry is it's filled with amazing people like yourselves and um i think that what that's what makes our industry special and so i i don't really have you know many people out there that i don't like or even or particularly hate so well that's that's a good place to end you're a good guy. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for joining us. And so someone, want, someone wants to reach out. Do they go to your website? Do you have a Twitter, Instagram, I've TikTok? Got, I've, got in, I've got Instagram, Jeff underscore Hull. So you can follow me there. Or, yeah, we've got a website that has our contact information. Search Hallmark and it comes right up. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much once again. This has been a great conversation. Wonderful content. You're doing a great, great things in the city and for the city. So thank you. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for being you here. You guys too. This Cheers. is this was a lot of fun.